Well, what's up, everyone? Good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here at Res City, and I am very excited to study God's Word with you all. Um, I am going to pray for us real quick, and then we are going to hop into our message this morning. Lord, thank you for a, uh, a day where we can gather together. Lord, you have set this day apart for yourself, Sunday, um, as a day for your people to gather, to worship you, to celebrate, um, and to grow more like you. Lord, we're going to be talking about that today. I pray that as we seek to do that, Lord, um, that you would just be with us. Your spirit would, would join us uh, in this place, Lord, as we read these words that were spoken by your son, Jesus, and inspired in, in the, in, into the scripture by your spirit, Lord, that your spirit would be in us, connecting us to the words and helping it to produce fruit in our lives, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I actually want to start today by reading the passage um, and then kind of going from there. Uh, we are in Luke 14, 27 to 35. We're in a, par- in, in, in a series uh, called Jesus' Stories, Understanding the Kingdom. It's about parables, the parables of Jesus that we read in the Gospels. And um, so I'm going to read you one of those parables right now, and then we'll get into kind of unpacking it. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the costs. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So there was a house on the outskirts of my hometown. It's up in, in northern Minnesota. Um, it's kind of a, a small town out there. And it looked like, you can see a picture of it here on the screen, it looked like it was going to be this amazing mansion. And especially me as like a 10-year-old, I would see this, I would kind of ride my bike sometimes and, and get, get a glimpse of it um, kind of off on the horizon. It seemed like, like what I imagined some, you know, some fate, like, Brad Pitt lived in a house like this, all right? That's the kind of town I grew up in. It was a massive house, but you do see it is a very large place. It was a sort of castle that you could see as you drove into town from one direction, kind of greeting as you came. Now, it looks pretty cool in this picture, right? But here's the problem with it. It never got finished being built, right? Everyone in my small town knew about this house, and it kind of became a laughingstock, as ten, things tend to become in little towns like this. It was actually called the Lego house. That was the derogatory term that it got for this place, because it, it just kind of kept getting added to, but never finished. And, and the story goes, right, and I want you to take a big grain of salt for small town rumor here, okay? But this was the small town rumor about it. You should probably take it with a big grain of salt. But an accountant, right, someone you would think would pay close attention to detail and be meticulous, bought the property in the 80s, and planned to move into there with his family and build a giant house on there. And apparently the guy had some carpentry experience, and he figured he could do the work himself. And the rumor was, again, this is all rumor, um, that he was kind of an impulsive guy. 
And when he would get an idea, he would do it immediately, but he wouldn't really think about it. He wouldn't count the cost of what this idea would actually look like as he tried to, to, to make it happen on this house. And so he would come up with an idea. He would run out of money. He would, you know, shingle a new, he would build a new section of the house, um, but he couldn't shingle it, right? Because he, he didn't have the money. He hadn't thought it through. And so then he would have to wait until he could get the money to do it. But by then, there's water damage inside the house. And he had to fix that, right? Et cetera, et cetera. You're going to get a sense for this, right? And he never finished it, never finished the house. 30-ish years after it got started, he had never finished it. And just in the last few years, apparently he finally kind of gave up and decided to just sell it, to try to see if he could get someone to take the whole thing off his hands. And by the time they got to this point, apparently there were 30 rooms in the house. It was spread over 8,700 square feet. You'd think that would be pretty intriguing, right? You would think that might be interesting to people. And so there was this open house, and a bunch of uh, people from the town came to visit and look at it. Hundreds of people came by, but no one bought it because it wasn't really good for anything, right? People got to the inside and saw there was damage from water not taken care of. There were rooms that had just been sheetrocked, but nothing else. Uh, you know, a door was hung, but not fully. Unpainted, just incomplete all over the house. And you could see the places where he'd come up with some idea, and he'd started on it, but he'd never finished. And so I believe it still sits today, unfinished, empty, and good for nothing. That's pretty ridiculous, right? Like, we, 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 would, we would think that we would never be the kind of person to, to engage in something like this, right? We think it would be crazy for anyone to ever do this with anything. Why wouldn't you count the cost beforehand, research it, make a plan, and follow through on it? Well, today Jesus' parable wants to ask us, what if we were like this in regards to our discipleship? We're in a series on parables, like I said. We're unpacking Jesus' stories about God's kingdom and what it means to live in it as disciples of Jesus. And Jesus is very famous for these parables. It's kind of a primary way that he communicates as we read through the Gospels and we see him uh, present his kingdom, challenge people. He's always using stories to do it. And I think he did so because these parables kind of operated as a kind of prophetic instrument, a a story that he could tell that created some distance between the hearers and him so that they could stop. They could not be offended right away. They could stop. They could reconsider their ways. It was used to convince and persuade people and to try to prompt thinking within them and stimulate some kind of response in them. And so often, these parables became tools to create discomfort in their hearers so that the Spirit of God could get into their hearts and spur them to become less like the world around them and more like people in the kingdom of of God. So before we start, I have a question for you all, okay? Do I have your permission to maybe make you a little uncomfortable today? Or maybe more accurately, I should say, are you okay letting the parable make you uncomfortable as we study it? Because it really is an uncomfortable one when we really allow ourselves to embrace it and wrestle with it. Now, we tend to treat discomfort as a bad thing, right? As something to avoid whenever possible, to kind of just look out for it. But in reality, being uncomfortable is often really good for us. It's actually often exactly what we need because discomfort is one of the places that we truly grow. And I think it's essential, and we'll find hopefully today that God doesn't waste our discomfort. He uses it. All right, so let's get into it today. The parable is often called the parable of the tower builder and the warring king. 
Let's study it. Um, you heard the parable. We're going to get into Jesus' application. But first, I want to focus on the story part and the questions posed by them. Okay? And before we do, I don't want you to forget about this. We are uh, in a series where we're going to be doing our question response. This is a really fun thing that we get to do as a church. We, we try to pull it out every once in a while as a way to sort of create some sort of uh, uh, interaction between uh, the, the preacher and the passage we're studying and then you guys as you're sitting in here. And so if you go to our website, redcitychurch.org, it should be right on the front page uh, that for you to submit a question. If you have a question about anything, you'd like to hear a response. I can't guarantee I'll give you an answer to it, but I'll offer up a response to it. We'll try to go through a few of those at the end of the sermon. So if anything comes up at any point, um, go ahead and send it in, and we might not get to all of them, but we'll try to get to as many as we can. All right, let's get into it. Let me actually reread a part of this parable. For who would begin construction on a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. Now, these two stories, it's not always the case with the parables, but these two stories are pretty intuitive. They're not that hard to understand. There's not a huge sort of gap between history and culture, between us and the original audience that kind of keeps it so we can't really, you know, figure out the understanding without having a PhD explain it to us, right? Uh, the NLT, the, the New Living Translation, which we're using here, it... it um, translates uh, a building as what the person is, is actually constructing. Uh, it's actually a tower. That's actually the, the word you'll find in most other translations. But building is a really good way to think of it, too. It doesn't really matter what kind of building it actually is, right? A tower might be built to look after property for a farmer, especially vineyards. Others built towers for lookouts and signal points for protection. Um, the, the, the point is that these are very common, just like a building a house is very common in our own time and day. And the king would be obviously idiotic to consider doing something as serious as going to war if he didn't really think his army could legit battle the other army, right? So Jesus tells these stories, but then he asks us questions after each of them, and that's where he's trying to get us to, to the point where we answer the question, and then we can start to consider what our answer might mean for us personally, right? Who would begin construction? What king would? Okay? Now, the reason that Jesus asks these questions is because questions are one of the major ways that parables create interest and draw us in. That's what Klein Snodgrass, who just, as a side note, is a candidate for the best name of all time, maybe. He's a scholar. That's what he says about this. These questions are a major way to draw us in, right? It's the same as why would you buy a plot of land and start building a large mansion without any plan to finish it? Why would you do that? It doesn't seem like a very good idea. I don't think any of us would do, or many people would not do that, right? And that's the point of the parable. But Jesus isn't just giving good building advice, right? Or saying something to some king who might be considering going to war. That's not the point, because the tower and the army are stand-ins for something else, and Jesus tells us right at the very beginning of the passage and right after uh, the story as well, once again, what they're stand-ins for. They're stand-ins for discipleship. Okay, that is what Jesus is talking about. That's the key. The parable is about our discipleship. Okay? So let's talk about discipleship a little bit. Okay? 
let's define it. Okay? We see Jesus says right here at the very beginning, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now let's be clear. The analogy of building a tower or going to war, this has nothing to do with making us right with God, what we might call salvation or justification, the things that draw us into God's presence and offer us his true hope of being his people. Right? We don't build or go to war in order to be right with God. God cuts in front of us before we could ever do something like that and gives us his grace for free. We can't build some tower or win a war through our effective planning and have God look at us and say, that's impressive, I really like that tower you built, or good job defeating that other army. Here's my grace, you've earned it. That's not how it works. The dis- uh, the- Discipleship is not the pathway to receive grace from God. It's the path we walk responding to grace. Grace is the beginning, and discipleship is the expected next phase of our life with Jesus. And it involves our actions, not just our beliefs. I think sometimes in in, in the Protestant tradition that we live in, we can sometimes prioritize belief so much that we forget about the very necessary uh, piece of our actions, of the fruit that we bear is another way we could talk about it, right? But we're to devote ourselves, all of us, to the one who has given us grace, okay? And I think that's actually a really good way to define discipleship. Discipleship is being captivated by the person of Jesus and becoming his apprentice, seeking to become like him. Day by day, being led by him, okay? Lucy Pepiot uh, is an author, and in her book called The Disciple, she says Christian discipleship is not about a set of rules and propositions, but it's about being captivated by a person. And the only prerequisite to an effective life of discipleship is to know that we are spiritually poor. She continues, when we become Christians, we all become apprentices to Jesus Christ. An apprentice is a learner, a novice, or a pupil who agrees to learn from a master craftsman or an artisan, someone skilled at what they do. However, with Jesus, we are not just learning how to do what he does, we are learning how to be like him. It is not only skills that we are picking up, but it is that we are transformed on the inside to have his character and his mind as well. In becoming more like Jesus, we become more like our true selves, the persons we were created to be. Now, Jesus talks in the passage we're studying today about becoming like him, and so becoming our truest selves, just like Lucy Pepiat's talking about here. But notice how he talks about becoming like him. He says that being like him means carrying a cross like he did. That's what discipleship That's a a key part of discipleship is being someone who's willing to carry their own cross, walking the tough path of the kingdom, believing it's not built by success, but sacrifice. That's what it means to be a disciple. It takes time. It requires that we die to ourselves so that we become alive to the kingdom and see the power uh, that works in death to bring resurrection. Now, becoming a disciple is, in a sense, very easy. Right? And the way I've described it here, I don't think it sounds like a terribly difficult thing to do, but it's actually very tough. And I think we have to recognize the unique challenges on us and living in our own time and place. And every society has its own challenges, I think, to discipleship. But the one we live in is a time where secularism is the norm. Okay? Now, let me define that. By secularism, I mean a mode of thinking that says we don't need God or anything else, and we don't need to sacrifice. If we don't have it, we can just buy it, We can invent it, 
We can crowdsource it. We can Google it. We can uh, get AI to do it for us. We can hire a therapist to fix us. We have all we need. We're all we need. And God is kind of just a relic of the past. It's okay to believe in him, but to actually rely on him in any sort of deeper sense is kind of unnecessary. What's the point? Okay, secularism gets us to believe that we are not truly poor in any way because the human system we've created can supply any and all needs, even spiritual poverty. Now, as you really think about it, it's clear that this is ridiculous, right? People have more of everything than they could ever need, right? You have, go to the store. You have more food than you could ever imagine possibly eating when you go into the store. You're overwhelmed by choices. It might seem like we have all we need, but think about how depression, despair, loneliness, emptiness, emptiness are alarmingly normal. Despite having all the stuff that we have, that's super normal. And instead, a poverty of purpose and substance and connection to something bigger than our own little stories and our identity. Another way we could put that is our spiritual poverty is rampant. Still, despite that, just filling ourselves with more shallow arousal from entertainment, from social media, from traveling, from getting a new job or conquest of some goal, whatever it is, all to get us to keep from, keep from us admitting our emptiness and admitting that purpose is not just a few clicks away on some online purchase, right? And so what we try to do with our discipleship a lot of times is we try to have this sort of, when it comes to our discipleship, we're trying to have this cheap sort of secular Americanized version of faith instead, right? And this version says, you know what? Instead of carrying my own cross and maybe getting some splinters or breaking a sweat and missing some plans with friends that I have, I bet I can find someone on one of those handyman apps who has a pickup and I can pay them to pick up my cross and carry it for me to the end. And then I'll just Uber from wherever I'm at and meet them at the very end. And that'll be my discipleship. Okay, we try to do that with our discipleship. We're trying to use cheap solutions to our discipleship so we can go on living what is oftentimes an empty, purposeless life that's sold to us by the society that we live in. Okay, we think we can be like Jesus and say, love the poor by just voting a certain way instead of actually being around the poor and being the hands and feet, serving them like Jesus did. We think we can be like Jesus in bearing one another's burdens when they share some deep personal pain by just texting them and saying, I'll pray for you, and liking their texts. Instead of actually going to them, taking time to be with them, praying with them, not just for them, rather than leaving our own plans, our own things that we think we have to do to be with them. We think we can have real time with God by saying a quick prayer and just kind of leaving it at that rather than leaving other things to go out and meet him in deep silence and solitude, right? These are all just, these are small examples of ways that I think we're trying to microwave our discipleship rather than putting it in a smoker 15 hours beforehand, being intentional, thinking about the meal we're making, putting some time into it, sacrificing something in order to make something better, Okay. When we microwave things, it's usually unintentional. It's usually a sign that we haven't put any thought into it, right? We get to, we get to 6 o'clock, we haven't thought at all about what we're doing for dinner, and we think, what am I going to have tonight? Eh, I'll just throw some ramen in the, uh, in the microwave. It'll take me a minute total to do it, right? And we can be like that with our faith. No intentionality, just kind of throwing it in at the last minute. 
And we can sense that the microwave things that we make are not the same kind of discipleship as a well-planned-out, intentional, smoked one, something we would put a, a huge amount of effort into, but we keep trying to microwave things anyway because we're constantly fed the promise of the microwave fix, of trying to fix our spiritual poverty with some quick and easy, cheap, simple solution to it. In short, we're always tempted to put in as little as possible. We're hoping to get the full reward back. But discipleship doesn't work that way. Carrying our cross doesn't work that way. Jesus would say we're not counting the cost. And while we may, maybe we do avoid some discomfort, like what we're trying to do, we often feel stuck. We might feel disinterested with our faith, distracted and busy, and still deeply unsatisfied and lonely and empty. Now, Jesus would tell us, and we'll explore this throughout some of these other parables, that the kingdom he leads us into has a substance unlike anything else this earth can give us, and it will fill our spiritual poverty like nothing else can. But to embrace its substance, we have to follow him by carrying a cross. And for Jesus, carrying his cross meant that he was dragging the instrument of his death, a death to this world and its microwave versions of discipleship and solutions to spiritual poverty, even if it sometimes means maybe the ridicule of those around us and the sacrifice of, of a cushy, comfortable, successful, at least in the, in the secular sense, the way that we might describe that kind of life. And we're called to die to that as well and to carry our own cross. And that's what Jesus means by counting the cost. And I think, to be really honest, we're rarely prepared for that. Now, Jesus rather starkly follows up the parable by giving a very practical teaching of what the cost looks like. Verse 33, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Okay, now this is hyperbole, all right? Hyperbole is exaggerated, you know, statements or claims not meant to be taken totally literally. He's not saying you have to literally sell everything you own. But here's the thing. Just acknowledging that it's hyperbole Sometimes what we can do by acknowledging that is, is allow ourselves to miss the point that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to give up anything he asks you. That's what I think he's saying here. He might ask us to give something up. Everything is on the table. Are we willing to give that up if he asks us to do it? Think about the things that we value most. Things like comfort or money or security, happiness, maybe hopes and dreams and passions you have, or your autonomy, your complete control over all you do. Maybe it's some political vision for the world that has deeply grasped your heart in some way, or it's your certainty about everything, how everything is going to play out. Maybe it's your popularity, your good standing with people that you look up to, you admire in some way, you want to get their approval. These are all things I think we tend to think are for granted, right? Rights that we maybe have even in our modern world. But what Jesus is saying here is that he's calling us to give up our for granteds if we want to follow Jesus. And if we're captivated by him, like a disciple is, then we will. And maybe he won't ask us to do it all the time, okay? And maybe not for good, but I think at some point he most certainly will ask you to part with some of these things or maybe something else. If there's ever something you think you would never have to give up to follow Jesus, you have not counted the cost of discipleship, I think. And the truth is, deep down, there probably is something that maybe we don't even realize it's there, but we've said, this is off limits. Jesus is not allowed to demand this from me, to ask me to change it or to give it to him or to, to transform myself in some way. 
And meanwhile, on the opposite end of that, our discipleship is often one of the first things to go when something even mildly urgent comes up, right? Being honest, okay? Just, just think to yourself, where would you say your discipleship of Jesus falls among these other parts of your life? Your, even good things like family duties or job or school, right? Activities you deem necessary for maybe your mental or physical health. Maybe it's house stuff, right? Or financial stuff, really important things that, yes, you do need to take care of. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's leisure activities or some other responsibility you have. Where is your time spent? Okay? Where does your discipleship fall among those other things? Do you struggle to fit in your discipleship among all these other things that you have in your life? Where does your mind wander, maybe, when you have time? Right? Or there, uh, there, there's a, does it wander to some anxiety you have, to some pressing need you feel like is so urgent, or to some entertainment, right? Onto something other than God. It's a good barometer, I think, for understanding where our hearts are at. Um, something I saw recently, okay, it was, it was around church attendance, okay? And let me just say this Re- regularly being at church in your church community, it's not the only feature of, of discipleship, okay? But I do think it's part of it. I think it's a, it's a big part of it is, is often and regularly being a part of the community that you're part of that follows Jesus, okay? Sunday attendance stats are actually in free fall. Um, I recently saw a study done on reasons people would, would skip church, okay? And just some of the things that just kind of stood out to me is for reasons people said that they'd be willing to miss a church uh, on a Sunday morning. 55% of people would skip church for nice weather, just to not waste it in some way. Uh, 54% would skip to get extra sleep. 50% would skip to hang out with friends. 42% would skip to watch a sporting event. Okay, now just, you can sub church attendance for any discipleship activity. That's not really my point is to talk about church necessarily, but just about these kinds of things we tend to put ahead or we're tempted at least to put ahead of real intentional discipleship time with Jesus. Okay, I would say largely the American church is not a cross-carrying church. It doesn't like to sacrifice. It doesn't want to die to anything. Okay? We communicate what we value with our time. And here's maybe a scary question to ask yourself. If a non-Christian, somebody who didn't know you super well or didn't maybe necessarily know you, do, you call yourself a Christian, if they were to look at your actual habits, your actual schedule, uh, you, maybe, you, would it, maybe it is your church attendance, your community group attendance, okay? Your actual time spent maybe meditating on Scripture, time in prayer, time spent in God's presence, and the amount of discernible influence that that has on your day-to-day life and the way it influences your decisions and character, would they, if they were just being really honest with you, would they say, I don't really see how you're really different than me or anybody else, right? Would they actually say following Jesus has made any difference really in your habits, your character, your schedule, your decision-making than anyone who wasn't a disciple of Jesus? Or would they say something like, what is the point of you even doing this? Why do you, even bother? Why do you put the effort into it? Jesus says, if, that, if our answer to that question is, yeah, I don't actually look that different from anyone else around me, he would say this is like being salt that has no flavor. Verses 34 and 35, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Okay, let me put that another way. Cheap, consumeristic, half-hearted, comfort-driven discipleship doesn't produce anything valuable. 
Here's what Jesus is asking each of us. A discipleship that is done when it's bored and there's nothing else to stimulate it that's slapped on at the last minute after all the other stuff that we care about more is taken care of or we've run out of trips to go on or things to buy on Amazon as a last resort and as a last resort maybe we, we pray or we read our Bible. We go to be in God's presence in some way. We be intentional. Okay? A faith that is distracted or in- unintentional that's very stop and start kind of wondering when it does get around to it why isn't this easier? Or, you know, it's just frustrated all the time that never finishes anything it starts. Jesus is asking us, what good is a faith like that? Like, why are you even doing it if that's all you're going to put into it? If you're not going to follow me wholeheartedly, at least find something else to do worthwhile with your time. Don't you want something greater than that? I think that's what Jesus is asking us as we really think about this parable today. Now, I don't know how this is all hitting you, right? Like I said, it's a bit of an uncomfortable parable. I know these are challenging words, but I think it's good for us to grapple with what Jesus is saying to us. I want us to really press into them today, okay? I'm going to be honest. Studying for this one this week, preparing for it, was uncomfortable for me too. Don't think, I, just because I'm up here unpacking this for you, that I'm immune to the challenge of Jesus in any way. It was a hard one for me to really prepare for and think about too. Jesus doesn't say this to rob us of our autonomy or ruin our fun. It's out of concern for who we're becoming. Truly, it is. And so maybe if you are feeling convicted in some way, okay, maybe you're like, uh, you know, this isn't always me, but sometimes it is. I definitely go through seasons where I feel like this, right? Um, I know our tendency is to be hard on ourselves. If that's true, I am telling you, don't panic, okay? Don't panic, This parable is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Remember how I said parables are supposed to work? It's like when we're getting a massage and the masseuse hits that point that really, really hurts, you know it's working. You know that the masseuse has hit the right spot. That's why you paid the masseuse to give you the massage because they found the right spot because it hurts like heck. That's how this parable is supposed to work too. That's how we know it's working. And what it does is it reminds us of our spiritual poverty and it gives us a chance to be recaptivated again by Jesus. Because that's what being a disciple ultimately is at the end of the day. Disciples are people who become recaptivated by Jesus over and over again by living the gospel again over and over again. Okay? Um, Lucy Pepiot again in, in this book, The Disciple, she says, so much of the effectiveness of our discipleship begins in our thinking. The process of becoming an apprentice is rooted in our perceptions of the character of God, the way he relates to us, his work in our lives, and the lives of those around us. Okay? Being a disciple is knowing who God is. And this gives us a chance, moments of challenge and discomfort. These are moments where we can grow by remembering who God is by letting his grace refresh us once again and give us an opportunity to yet again meet him in a real and captivating way. Okay, parables offer us this, where we can look at our thinking, we can reorient ourselves to God. Because God's kingdom is characterized by grace. We're going to unpack that more in other parables later on. And nothing hinges on your ability to carry your cross well. I think this is important. We can get so focused on ourselves and how good a job we're doing of carrying our own crosses that we forget that it all actually hinges on Jesus' ability to carry his cross, which he did, all the way to Golgotha outside Jerusalem, and then he got nailed onto it. And then he rose again, offering us his grace and his power 
so that we could follow him, even when we fail in some way, even when we fall short. That's what matters. That's what we're captivated by. That's where our hope really comes from. If this passage, a passage like this hits you hard, I don't want you to be hard on yourself or feel this despair. I want you to be intentional and use this moment to grow as a chance to once again be recaptivated and become a disciple of Jesus and to remember his character, to reconsider his character, be refreshed by it, be recaptivated, and to do the gospel again over and over again in your heart. That ultimately is the beating heart of being a disciple of Jesus. And I want to encourage you to use this moment now if you're feeling challenged to do that. All right, before we close, let's do a little bit of Q&R. Do we have any questions? Yeah, yes, we've got one. I don't know if, oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, uh, So I I know you kind of touched on this towards the end, but uh, the question is, what if I'm a perfectionist? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so hearing these things uh, just sounds really overwhelming. How can I mm-hmm. um, follow Jesus but not uh, get caught up on the, yeah. all the details? Yeah. It's kind of the, that's the paraphrase of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, let me, let me just say this to you. First of all, your perfectionism is a gift, okay? I don't know who's, who's saying this. Coming from a non-perfectionist, like, I'm glad there are perfectionists in the world and in the church, okay? So I just want to first say that don't be mad at yourself for feeling like it's really important to uh, nail things all the time. Um, but I think, you know, again, I'm not a perfectionist, so I can't get inside your brain, but I think when you are someone who has a high value on um, efficiency and sort of and, and doing things the right way and, and not messing up in some way, we can tend to focus on the parts of discipleship that are very active um, and are kind of the things that seem to be making a discernible difference in the world, right? Um, one of the other important things of dis- like practices of discipleship that's probably even I wouldn't say it's necess- it is more fundamental in that it's where we have to start is the practice of confession and repentance. So if you want to be a dis- if you want to be a perfectionist, be a perfectionist, but be a perfectionist about confession and repentance and truth telling. Okay, I think uh, we're 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 going to be talking about this a little bit. I think probably early next year, hopefully. But like conf- confession and repentance is really us telling the truth to ourselves and to God. Be perfect in telling the truth about yourself to yourself and to God. And, 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 and be perfect in those things. And that's a chance for you to not focus on what you're doing, but to focus on what God has done and is doing in your life on a regular basis. And I think when you are able to start there before you, you know, get on the checklist of other things that you feel like you need to be perfect and nail, I think it makes those things seem less daunting and less scary and honestly less necessary. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think confession and repentance, if you're feeling challenged, they're the most essential parts of following Jesus. And I think if it's good for us to become experts at that before we become experts at any other part of discipleship, okay? So I think that's my encouragement to you. And that is something you can always do. You can't fail at confession and repentance when you do it. It's, it's, it's not a difficult thing to do. You just have to do it. So, okay, good question. That's it? Okay, awesome. Well, um, we are going to move into a time of worship and communion. And communion is a chance for us to, every single week, it's a discipleship tool that's been given to us by Jesus 
to reorient ourselves to how he carried his cross and we simply follow him in that. How nothing hinges on our ability to carry our cross well, but it hinges on his ability to do it. And that's why we do it every single week, to reorient ourselves to that truth, to retune ourselves. I like to use that imagery of retuning ourselves like an instrument uh, has to be tuned constantly back to the right, uh, by, to the right notes. Uh, it's a chance to retune ourselves back to the gospel, to why we're here, why we're disciples, why we're captivated by Jesus in the first place. So please, come up and take communion during worship. Um, you can come up at any point uh, over the course of the, of, of the worship time, and uh, you don't have to be a, a member or regular tender here at Rest City. We just ask that you are a follower of Jesus, that you consider yourself a follower, someone who's received grace from him and who wants to follow him. Even if you feel like you're not doing a good job of it, you want to be a disciple of his. Please come and take in the meal that he has given to all of his disciples, to all that he's given his grace to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you ask us to carry our cross, but you're not asking us to do anything that you didn't do first, God. Um, As we carry our own crosses and we become like you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, grow in our understanding that um, becoming like you is to understand your grace at a, at a, at a level that is, is so deep that we, can, uh, we aren't afraid of failing because we know it's always there for us, God. And in that, as we become more like you, as people who are full of grace to offer to others, God, as we become truly disciples who are like you, God, I pray that you would bless us through your spirit. So ultimately, it matters what we do, but it matters more what you've done and are doing for us, God. I pray that you would help our minds to be there. And as we do it, we would count the cost of what being a true disciple of yours looks like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.